Hello, welcome back to The Cosmic Companion. In this week's episode of Astronomy News with The Cosmic Companion, we dive deep beneath the Pacific Ocean and see how bacteria living inside rocks could change our studies of life on Mars. We'll undertake an immense journey through the universe, looking at jets emanating from distant quasars, and we'll feel the wind of failed stars. Finally, we'll look back 50 years ago, when the world watched transfixed as the crew of Apollo 13 struggled for survival. Bacteria discovered inside rocks laying beneath the Pacific Ocean could change the way we search for life on Mars. The primitive life forms were found huddled together inside clay tubes, which concentrated nutrients, allowing the bacteria to flourish. Billions of years ago, the red planet was home to vast oceans, seas, and rivers. Researchers from the University of Tokyo recently published a new study suggesting that ancient life forms on Mars may have lived in similar conditions to those recovered from under the South Pacific in 2010. Just a year ago, radio astronomers at the Earth Horizon Telescope produced the first ever detailed images of the region surrounding a black hole. Now this same network has examined quasar jets for the first time. Quasars are highly energetic bodies fed by supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. These observations reveal unexpected twists in a jet along with other smaller jets running at right angles to the main features. Researchers are now questioning how these features may have formed. Using the very large array of telescopes, in New Mexico, astronomers have recently measured wind speeds on a brown dwarf for the first time. These failed stars are several times larger than the planet Jupiter, but are too small to ignite so nuclear fusion and become stars. The study revealed winds on the surface of 2M1047 reached almost 2,300 kilometers per hour, or 1,425 miles per hour. This is more than six times faster than the fastest winds on Jupiter. The flight of Apollo 13 took place 50 years ago this week. This mission, launched on April 11, 1970, was NASA's third crewed mission to the moon. Despite an engine glitch six minutes into the flight, the first two days of the flight were largely uneventful. Then, an oxygen tank exploded and astronauts struggled to stay alive. The crew landed safely six days after leaving Earth on April 17, 1970. This week on Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, we're going to take a little break from astronomy and have some fun with science. We are talking with Ellen Adler, who was the inventor of the Araby ring, uh, the flying disc that has the world's record for the longest thrown object. And he is also the inventor of the Aeropress coffee maker. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thanks very much, James. I'm happy to be here. 
Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit about what got you into what 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 inspired you to develop the LRB ring and how it came about? Sure. Uh my profession was electronics engineering. And um I also took an interest in aerodynamics because I love sailing and I wanted to design sailboats. So I studied aerodynamics for years just as a hobby. And then I got interested in applying it to flying tours. And the process of developing the Araby flying ring was a uh, an eight-year process. I um, started out by trying to make a thinner Frisbee because an ordinary Frisbee disc is uh, more than an inch thick. Hmm. And uh, the thicker something is, the more aerodynamic drag it has, that is because of the, the more air it has to really uh, push out of the way as it flies. So I worked off and on for several years trying to make thin discs that would fly farther. And they did fly farther, but it was difficult to make them fly straight. And uh, later on in this interview, I'd like to talk a little bit about the issue of making discs uh, fly straight. But for now, we'll just go on with the story. Um, after disappointing results with discs, I began to experiment with rings, and I had much better luck with rings. And for those of you that don't know what an Arabie looks like, it's a flat ring. It's the opposite of what you might uh, visualize as, say, a wedding band, which an aerodynamicist would call that shape in a cell. Uh, this is more like a flat washer. It's like a flat disc with a hole in the center. Anyway, I had uh, much better um, success with rings, and I developed and patented a ring and sold the design to Parker Brothers, which they marketed under the name Skyro around 1980. And the Skyro set a succession of Guinness World Records. Uh, the first one was 757 feet. And uh, a year later, the same thrower, Tom McCran, threw it about 100 feet farther. But the Skyro wasn't uh, as good as I thought in the sense that it was fairly speed sensitive and it would only fly straight in a, in a fairly narrow speed range. And so I continued to try to improve the design and in 1984 I came up with what we now call the Araby flying ring. And the biggest difference about the Araby is that around the outer perimeter, there's a little ridge, which an aerodynamicist would call a spoiler. And what the spoiler does is it reduces the lift of the front half of the ring and uh, 
the um, ring into balance fore and aft. Now, you might think that if a flying disc is out of balance fore and aft, it would change its angle uh, of attack or its pitch angle in aerodynamics terms. So, for example, if it has too much lift in the front, which is a natural result of most uh, simple disc designs, you might imagine that it would lift up in the front, but because it's spinning, it obeys the rules of what are called uh, gyroscopic precession. And the rule of gyroscopic precession is that if you try to tilt something that's spinning, you apply a tilting force, but it actually moves exactly one quarter of a revolution later. So if a spinning disc, which let's say is spinning clockwise when viewed from above, has too much lift in the front, a quarter of a revolution later is the right-hand side of that disc. And so what will happen is that the disc will lift up on the right-hand side and it will bank off to the left and fall. Mm -hmm. It's very important to equalize the lift fore and aft in order to get a straight flight. Right. And... Um so then you also had a had sort of an unusual um inspiration in an ancient weapon as well. How did that come about? I'm sorry. I as you know I don't hear too well. I had an inspiration in what? In an ancient weapon, the chakra? No. A lot of people thought that the chakra is a metal ring that's sharpened on the outside, but it's pretty heavy, and it's not very aerodynamic. Things that um, are aerodynamic, um, their, their flight is determined by aerodynamic forces. But some things we say their flight is not very aerodynamic, it's more ballistic, and it just follows a trajectory that is about like a rock would follow if you threw it. Mm -hmm. All right. So, well, we got to that. How, how did you get these things to fly straight? Well, after the uh, Skyro... I continued to try to balance the lift fore and aft, and I began by studying a lot of um, aerodynamic uh, papers at the NASA Ames Library in Mountain View, California, and also at Stanford University, uh, where I was a part-time lecturer. And in the end, I didn't find anything in those sources, but I had some ideas uh, that eventually turned out. And the key, as I've already mentioned, is this little ridge around the perimeter of the ring. If you've ever seen an Arabic uh, flying ring, you can look one up on uh, the Internet. This ridge is about an eighth of an inch tall. 
and that's just enough to reduce the lift in the front, which would normally be too much, and bring it into balance with the lift in the back. So imagine that a ring is flying through the air. It's sort of like two airfoils, the front half of the ring and the back half of the ring. Mm-hmm. And the back half of the ring is influenced by the front half, which is pushing the air downward. And that downward um, angled air doesn't produce as much lift, so the uh, rear doesn't normally have as much lift as the front. You can actually try this yourself. Um, I uh, have an aerodynamics lesson, a 37-minute long aerodynamics lesson on YouTube, where I show how you can make a ring out of cardboard and bring it into balance by uh, bending the cardboard a little bit. I've already sent uh, James the link to that, and maybe there's some way he can make that link available to listeners. Absolutely, absolutely. We do encourage. That uh, aerodynamics lesson was uh, designed for high school science students, and any layperson can understand it, and I think you'll find it very interesting. It applies to uh, anything that's affected by aerodynamics, uh, the automobiles, airplanes, sailboats, a lot of things. Super. And uh, with the multiple successes of your of your ring, afterwards you devised a flying disc. What what inspired you to bring bring your science from from a ring to a disc? Well, I think that discs are actually inferior to rings, but. A lot of people like discs. They they grew up with frisbees, and um, we were in the business of making things that fly. So, although uh, we were selling literally millions of Araby flying rings, I thought it would still be worthwhile to come up with a disc. And eventually, I did. It uh, was marketed under the name uh, Araby Super Disc. And it's about half as thick as a regular Frisbee, and it has an exceptionally straight flight. When you throw a regular Frisbee hard, if you're a right-handed thrower, it tends to bank off to the right. So a lot of throwers uh, anticipate that, and they release it with some left bank, and then it as it banks to the right, it becomes level. The Araby Super Disc doesn't do that. It flies straight. It flies at whatever angle you release it at. So I tell people just to release it level, and it'll continue to fly that way. Super, super. And in 2005, uh, you know, a lot of of, uh, science, of course, runs on coffee. I know I do. And in 2005, you released the AeroPress Coffee Maker. Um, how did that come about? Can you 
How did you use science to help us develop a better cup of coffee? It was very different from the uh, flying toys. When I worked on flying toy designs, I always had a commercial product in mind. I thought if I can design a better flying object, we can make it and sell it. But that wasn't in my mind with the coffee at all. I was just uh, wanting to brew a better cup of coffee for myself. I was frustrated by the fact that an ordinary automatic drip uh, maker doesn't work well for a single serving. And whenever I wanted coffee, I just wanted one serving. I didn't want to make a whole pot of coffee. So I began to experiment, and initially my experiments were directed at what's the optimum water temperature for the best flavor. And I was helped a little bit by a little scrap of paper that was uh, sold with the Chemex coffee maker, one that I bought perhaps 25 years earlier. Hmm. And it said, um, the coffee will taste better if you use less uh, hot than boiling. Mm-hmm. So I did a series of experiments on myself and then on friends and family and determined that uh, coffee that was brewed by the simple pour-over method where you just pour hot water onto coffee in a cone filter, that coffee that was brewed by that method tasted best if the water temperature was 175F, which is 80 centigrade. And it tasted a lot better. Um, But the uh, drip-through took about four or five minutes by that method, the pour-over method. And I thought, gee, if, if lowering the temperature makes such a big difference, maybe shortening the time would be good, too. And uh, I tried to just press on the top of the slurry and the cone filter with the back of a spoon, but that didn't accelerate the drift through at all. Mm-hmm. I realized that I would have to contain the coffee in an airtight chamber if I was going to pressurize it and cause it to filter uh, more quickly. So um, I designed this tube, and I have my own shop where a lot of my inventions were developed. And I literally went out into my own shop, and I made the first prototype Aeropress. And I was just absolutely amazed at how good the coffee tasted. It, It had extremely low bitterness and had very rich flavor. So I invited Alex Tennant, who is the general manager of my business, Arabian Incorporated, to come over to the house and taste a cup of coffee. And uh, he did, and I remember his exact words. He said, Alan, I can sell a ton of these. So we decided to go into the coffee maker business. And it involved a lot of hard work because we had spent uh, many 
years building up sales and distribution for sporting goods. And all of a sudden, here we were in a totally different category. But the work turned out to be worthwhile, and eventually uh, sales of the AeroPress coffee maker uh, were greater in terms of uh, dollar volume than all of the uh, 15 sporting goods items combined. Wow. Oh, and so are you still thinking up new ideas and you still have new inventions that you're working on now? Yes, very definitely. I really enjoy uh, pursuing new ideas. I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit, if we have time, about the history of brewing coffee. If, if you oh, please, have, please. You know. we'd, love, we'd, love to, we'd love to hear what you have to share. The history of brewing coffee is of going from extremely aggressive, long steeping in very hot water, like boiling grounds for an hour in a pot, down to very short times where the brewing is could be measured in seconds, like the AeroPress. And it seemed like there was a natural tendency for people brewing coffee to want to try to wring everything you could out of the grounds. Mm -hmm. But that results in a horribly bitter brew. And the way to make a good, really good taste in a cup of coffee is to brew very gently. Not too much temperature and not too much time. The other thing is that... Um, most methods of brewing coffee involve passing uh, a flow of water through a bed of coffee. But, and that's what the automatic drip machine does. But the uh, utilization of the grounds is very uneven. The grounds in the center tend to get overextracted in the sense that uh, they're extracted too aggressively, and the grounds around the perimeter tend to be under-extracted. So the way the AeroPress uh, works is that you stir the grounds and the water all together. It's extremely uniform extraction. And, and then after stirring for only 10 seconds, you apply pressure, air pressure, and it pushes the liquid uh, through the filter and into your cup. Right, and of course, one of the one of the other you know popular methods um, for making coffee, where you you know stir up the grounds, is of course French press. And what are some of the advantages of the AeroPress over a traditional French press? Well, a good thing you can say about the French press is it also uniformly extracts in the sense that you're stirring the grounds uh, together. The bad thing is that the French press uses a metal screen rather than a filter, and a lot of grit gets into your cup. And even after it's in your cup and you're drinking it, 
it's still extracting and still um, giving up bitterness into your brew. So the French press brew is extremely bitter. It's extremely acidic. It's 10 times more acidic uh, measured with an acid meter than the AeroPress brew is. And finally, the French press is very difficult to clean. Uh, the grounds tend to get wedged into the metal screen, and you have to vigorously brush it to try to liberate stuck grounds uh, from the screen. Right. Right. Um, and um, so naturally we'll put up a link to some of your YouTube videos and such when we do the story, um, when we publish the story. Um, but if someone were just on YouTube and wanted to take a look at some of your inventions, uh, how should they search? They search for Ellen Adler or AeroPress or... What do you recommend? Uh, that's a good way. You could also look for uh, contributor A1257. And uh, that's my contributor name on YouTube. I got that name because at one time the Aeropi world record was 1257 feet. Mm-hmm. And you'll see some other things I invented there. Uh, the um, aerodynamics lesson is not that way because somebody else took my aerodynamics lesson and posted it on YouTube. But mm-hmm. you have the link to that. All right, super. All right, is there anything else you would you would like to share with the listeners? Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about luck and inventing. Please. Um, The AeroPress is the luckiest invention I ever did in the sense that it turned out to have some advantages that I didn't even have in mind when I started the process. Um, For example... It brews in only a couple of minutes. I I had no idea would I'd come up with something so fast. It turns out to have very low bitterness. Uh, as I said, one tenth the acid of French press and about one fifth the acid of automatic drip coffee. It's self cleaning. I didn't consider self cleaning in a million years. It just turned out that. That's the way it worked. Yeah, I've had AeroPresses before, and I use them now, and one of the things I really love is how easily they clean. You just pop the little syringe pump through, and it pretty effectively cleans out the whole thing, and you just give it a quick rinse, and and you're out of there, you know? I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. So, all right. Well, thank you very much, Alan. It was wonderful to have you on the show. I wish you the best of luck to you in the future. Okay. Thanks. All right. All right. And that was Alan Epler, inventor of the Araby Flying Ring and Flying
flying disc, as well as the AeroPress coffee maker. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and keep your wonder alive. If you enjoyed this episode of The Cosmic Companion, please download and share the episode on YouTube or on any major podcast provider. We have a new page for updates about Comet Atlas at cometatlas.info. For more details on space and astronomy news, please visit thecosmiccompanion.net or thecosmiccompanion.com.